Well, if you've got a copy of the confession, you can open that up. Or if you've got a hymnal, you can look it up in the back of the hymnal. We're going to continue working our way through chapter 24 of our confession. So you can turn there, and then you can turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 13. I'll do is read Romans 13, 1, 2, 4, talk for a little bit. I'll, I'll read some other scriptures from various places as we often do, assorted references, and then we'll come back to Romans 13 for a little bit. Romans 13, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is the word of God. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather and to consider your word together and to sing together. As we look toward this particular topic, we thank you for your compassion towards us as creatures and as men, knowing that we would need systems and structures of authority and governance. Lord, you have had our goodwill in mind from eternity, even as we saw this morning in, in sending the Lord Jesus, your Son. There was peace on earth and goodwill toward men in the sending of Christ. You've always had our interest, our best interest in mind. Your ways that you've revealed to us have always been the best ways. You've only revealed to us and called us to that which is good. You've only uh, required us to give up that which would damn us if we held to it. And you've given us that which would be life if we would cling to it. You've been so good to us. And so we ask, Lord, that in light of those past mercies and in light of your immutable character that does not change, that you would continue to be good to us this evening and that you'd teach us again from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do for an introduction is read the first paragraph of this chapter again. I'll read the whole paragraph and then and briefly recap what we did three weeks ago. So paragraph one of chapter 24. 
It says that God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, he hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. So three weeks ago, what we did, or the way I began, was simply pointed out that in that paragraph, there are basically nine foundational truths to a biblical teaching on the civil magistrate. And I'll, I'll state them now. The first one, God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. Number two, God has ordained civil magistrates to be under Him. Number three, God has ordained civil magistrates to be over the people. Number four, God has ordained civil magistrates to be over the people for His own glory. Number five, God has ordained civil magistrates to be over the people for the public good. Number six, to the, to the end of His glory and the public good, God has armed the civil magistrates with the sword. Number seven, God has armed the civil magistrates with the power of the sword for the defense of those that do good. Number eight, God has armed the civil magistrates with the sword for the encouragement of them that do good. Number nine, God has armed the civil magistrates with the sword for the punishment of evildoers. All I did was take that paragraph and break it down into nine uh, propositional truths or statements in the form of sentences rather than a paragraph. And what we did three weeks ago was opened up the first of those, which was this. God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. And hopefully, uh, just by way of repetition that evening, you, you got that stuck in your head. God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. And I summarized it this way. The one living and true God of the Bible is the highest ruler over the entire system of creation existing in confinement to what we call planet Earth. Obviously, we do believe that God is Lord over things beyond what we call the earth. But for the, for the sake of this study, we're talking about civil magistrates. We don't need to step outside of our planet. We can just say, on this planet, we know for a fact that God is the supreme Lord and ruler over everything. Now, this evening, we're going to go to the second truth. God has ordained civil magistrates to be under Him. That's all we're going to consider. And I've broken that one up even into two statements of biblical revelation. Number one, God has ordained the civil magistrates. That's number one. And number two, God has ordained the civil magistrates to be under Him. So first, God has ordained the civil magistrates. Now, first question obviously would be, what do we mean when we say that God has ordained the civil magistrates. Do we equate the word ordain or, or ordained with the, the idea of allowance or a concession? Do we believe that God looked down upon the human race at some point and He saw us collecting ourselves in, into nation states and heaping up for ourselves rulers and building walls and borders and, and sectioning ourselves off and He said, well, if that's what you're going to do, then I guess I'll allow it. Is that what has happened? Is that what we mean when we say God has ordained the civil magistrates? The answer is no. Remember who we're talking about. We're talking about God, the God of the Bible, the one living and true God who's revealed Himself in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Of that God, we read in our confession in chapter 3, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity 
by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. The next paragraph says, Although God knoweth whatsoever may, may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such, such, such conditions. In other words, God has decreed everything, and it's not even that he looked and down the halls of the corridors of time and saw what would happen and then said, okay, I'll decree that. No, he decrees it freely and unchangeably before anything would or could come to, bat, come to pass. And so our God is the eternally self-existent one who has decreed all things that come to pass. We, we typically refer to that as His hidden will or His decreed will. And at the same time, that same God is the God who has given us His revealed will in His Word. And so when we say that this God has ordained the civil magistrates, we're not confessing that uh, simply He allowed it to be or He gave the concession to be uh, that it would be. And he, we're, we're not merely confessing that God has simply decreed eternally in His hidden will that it would come to pass. All of those are true, or, or the second one is true. What we're saying is that He has personally instituted the magistracy as a part of His revealed will for the human race. Just as with the Ten Commandments, God, what would you have us do? When it comes to civil magistrates, that's, those are one of the things that God would have us to do. He has ordained it. It's just like the family. It's just like the church. God doesn't merely allow families to be. He made it that way. He invented it. God doesn't merely allow the church to be. He made it that way. He instituted it. It's the same with the civil magistracy, those who are in authority over what we call the civil sphere or nation-states. It's not that He gave, gives the concession or simply allows it. He instituted it. It was His idea, and therefore it is good. The opposite, no rule or anarchy, is contrary to God. It's not just a bad idea. It's contrary to God's ordinance. And there are even, even some of the, the, the limited government of some libertarian perspectives is contrary to God's ordinance. The, 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 the idea that, well, we, we, we can have government, but basically they don't have any actual authority or should not exercise any authority anywhere, that's also contrary to God's ordinance. He has ordained civil magistrates for a particular purpose, and, and uh, we have to understand that. God has ordained the civil magistrates. So the next question, what do we mean by civil magistrates? What does that phrase mean? The word civil deals with the relationships of people in a society. Quoting, I think this might have been Webster's, relating to a society, this is the definition of civil, relating to a society, pertaining to public life, relating to the civic order, befitting a citizen. That's what civil means. And so when we use the phrase civil magistrates, we're dealing with a category that is separate from the church. We're dealing with a category that is separate from the family. Not, not that there's no interaction or, or relationship at all, but this is a, a different category. Civil magistrates are not ecclesiastical magistrates, just by the very definition of civil magistrates. Civil laws are not ecclesiastical laws. Why? Because they're civil laws. They, they pertain to a different sphere. 
We have to keep that in mind. Our confession, and we'll see this, our confession has a chapter on the church. This ain't it. We're talking about civil magistrates, not ecclesiastical magistrates, or even family magistrates. This chapter is not dealing with the church. It's dealing with the relationship of Christian citizens and their civil magistrates. Civil is very often uh, synonymous with what we've heard recently about the common kingdom. Civil and common very often go together, the common kingdom and the civil kingdom. What is a magistrate? Um, the ma definition of the word magistrate is a public or civil officer. Magistrates or magistrates, however you want to say that, with an S, plural, would be all public or civil officers in their various levels and ranks. And so what we're saying, what we're confessing, is that God has instituted the idea of various levels and ranks of public officers and authorities in the civil sphere. He did it. He came up with it. His idea. He instituted it. Now... At, at this point, now I want to try to begin to draw some uh, distinctions and defend what I believe the Bible teaches and what I believe our, our Baptist forefathers confessed and what Christians have always confessed against some errors that we have heard repeatedly over the past year and a half or so. Very often when we see or read or say the phrase civil magistrate or the magistrate, I think there's a place you can go in every county and there's an office and there's a, a, a tag on the door that will say magistrate's office. And you go in there and there's going to be a person sitting there. Very often when we say civil magistrate or the magistrate, we associate that with a specific person or maybe even a group of people which make up a governing body. In other words, because the positions are filled by human beings, we sort of automatically associate magistrate with person, individual, that person. That's not the case. That's not correct. While people do fill the positions and execute the authority vested in a magisterial office, that does not mean that that person in themselves as a person is the authority. They've been placed into a position which has been given a particular authority. It's the same as the church. It's the same with the family. And it's especially true in, in the, government, the governmental system that we have here in the United States. As you've probably heard, our Constitution is our supreme rule of law and order as a nation. But we have magistrates which are offices of people, offices of authority. And what's their job? Their job is to enforce the Constitution. They, when they come into office, they don't, they don't swear to do what they want to do. They swear to uphold a higher standard. They are enforcers of the law itself. They don't have intrinsic, personal, individual power because of who they are. To, to illustrate the point, a stop sign has no authority over me simply because it's a piece of metal with an octagon at the top and it's red and has letters. It's not that sign itself that has the rule over me. But if I ignore a stop sign, that could get me in trouble because the stop sign has been placed to represent somebody who does have authority. A, a particular law that says at this intersection, the, this car must stop and watch the road. Now, why does any of that matter? 
Because if we make no distinction in the idea of the magistracy, magistracy and the individual who might fill the office, then we will inevitably fall into the trap of thinking that the individual themselves has or owns the authority and therefore they may execute their authority how they please because they are there. They have a particular title over their name. And ultimately that leads to the idea that regardless of a person's adherence to any kind of moral code or the laws of the land, if they happen to find themselves in a position of authority, then they are to be obeyed regardless of whether or not they are executing their authority as the office requires. People begin to think that, even if they're acting outside of their jurisdictional boundaries. If this were the case, then a sheriff's deputy from some county in South Carolina could drive up here and give me a ticket. Well, he's got a badge. You know, he's got a uniform on. No, he can flash his blue lights all day long. I'm going to keep rolling. This is not his jurisdiction. No authority here. Have a good day, officer. It's not him. It's the authority above him that he represents and even within the jurisdictional boundaries of his particular office, whatever that might be. Now, for people who, who think this way, that it's simply the man, because he's in an office and because he's there, what he says, we obey, whoever ends up holding an office is called, quote, God's man. God put him there, and therefore, we just have to submit and do what he says. Now, is there a sense in which they are correct? God put him there. Going back to what we said before, we could say yes. We can look at any event which has already taken place in the past and say that according to the eternal decree of God and in the divine providence of God, it was the, a part of the hidden and decreed will of God that that person come into that position. But we would also say the exact same thing about rape and abortion. It happened, therefore it must have been included in the eternal decree of God. Would we then uh, deduce, well, then it should have happened according to the revealed will of God? By no means. Those are two different things. Because we understand this reality of the two wills in God, we start with God, one hidden and one revealed, we can say at the same time that according to God's revealed will, what He said in His Word, there are some men who should not hold office, especially those who are unfit, especially those who get their position by lying and deception. That's not uh, moral. That's contrary to God's standard. But at the same time, we could say, after the fact, if they end up in the office, we could say, well, I guess it was a part of God's decree that that person be there for this reason or, or, or for whatever reason. But we have to get away from the notion that anyone who, by any means whatsoever, finds themselves in a place of authority is there in accordance with God's revealed will, i.e. Romans 13, and that everything he does, he's doing as a servant of God. He's God's man. He's God's servant. We just have to obey. That's not what the Bible teaches. And I want to show you that. Now, Israel was not the typical civil kingdom. And when I say typical, I mean it in the way that we typically mean it as in, like I just said it, typical, not type, anti-type. Israel, the, the, you, you can, we can go wrong by saying, well, look at Israel, how they do it. There, there's a lot of places where we go wrong that way. But we do see in the, the, the nation-state of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, this situation played out where we realize some men come to power and God says, that wasn't of me. They did that on their own. They rebelled. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20 says, 
When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Lots of people got together and said, we're going to make him our king. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. That sin that is described there is explained more fully in 2 Chronicles 13. Verses 5 to 8. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made you for gods? That's what they did. They rebelled against God. They set up an unrighteous king. In Hosea chapter 8, verse 4, I believe probably talking about the same instance, they have made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Now, clearly, God's not saying He had no idea what they were doing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's saying, they acted apart from my prescription. I told them what to do. They rebelled. God is, in a sense here, distancing Himself from their actions. He's throwing the responsibility into their laps for what they did. You did this. I didn't have any part in that. Now, would we say, again, according to the hidden and decreed will of God from eternity. Was this a part of that decree? Of course. But God says, based on what I revealed in my word and what I told you to do, I'm out of it. You set up kings, but not for me. Not through me. And we know that when Jeroboam set up his idols and led the people away from the will of God, those who followed him were called idolaters, sinners. They were not praised because they followed God's man, right? Well, I, he's in power. I mean, we don't agree with everything he does, but we got to submit because he said Bethel and Dan. No, they were idolaters. They rebelled against God and His Word. Now, we don't have anything in Scripture that says that our, our, our magistrates or our presidents or anything are to, become, are to come from a particular line of people. But this, the, the point remains. This idea that anybody who just happens to be in a position of power, well, God put them there and therefore obey. That's not, that's not biblical. Now, some people would, would hear what I just gave, that illustration, and say, well, obviously we don't obey commands to sin or those commands which forbid obedience to God, which we've learned in the past 20 months. Most people have thrown that out the window as well. But they would say, well, obviously we wouldn't obey commands to sin. And that's good. That, hopefully that's obvious. We wouldn't obey commands to sin. But remember the issue, we're not even dealing with specific laws, what he commanded or didn't command. The issue is the idea of authority. Where did it come from? Who did God say was supposed to be the king? And they rebelled. And God said, they made kings, but not through me. God is the supreme Lord and king over all the world. God has ordained civil magistrates to be under him. It's not only a problem when magistrates legislate contrary to God, in other words, sinful things, or they prohibit righteousness. It's a problem when they legislate outside of their God-given jurisdiction. 
And what the confession is saying is God has ordained jurisdictions. He's set up boundaries in which these men may operate. To step outside of those is to rebel against God. At that very point, the very act of legislation is contrary to God, regardless of the law. Again, to use the illustration of the stop sign. Imagine if I went and stole, pulled up the stop sign at the end of my street and brought it to your house and planted it in your front yard. Would you then be obligated, every time you're mowing your yard, you come around to that stop sign, would you be obligated to stop, look both ways, before you proceeded forward? Hopefully you say, no, that's, that's crazy. Now, would it be a sin to stop and look both ways before moving forward? No, that wouldn't be wrong. You can do that all day if you'd like. But I would suggest the very, the very fact that you are stopping and obeying an unrighteous, uh, outside of the jurisdiction legislation is a mockery of the, of the, the idea of jurisdictions. You're, you're turning it into something that it's not supposed to be. Now, we'll see this more clearly when we get to Romans 13. The point is simply that God has ordained the civil magistrates. That is the very foundational notion of civil authority at various levels. We don't need to extend that all the way down to any person who by any means comes to a place of power over others. Again, if I have a weapon and you are forced to choose between your life and obeying some goofy rule like crawl around the floor, I'm going to have some inherent authority over you. Well, just do what he says or we die. That doesn't make me a rightful ruler. That doesn't make me fall into the category of Romans 13. Well, he's God's servant for our good. He said, walk on our knees. Now, that's not what it means. And, and we know that. We know that, I think. It's, it's obvious. Now, let's look at some more scriptures. First, let's identify the proper biblical language. In the Old Testament, you'll see these words. Kings, princes, gods, lords, heads, leaders, chiefs, elders. Those are all words for various levels of uh, magistrates or governing authorities. In the book of Daniel, we get the language of some of the, the Babylonian rulers, satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, officials, all would fall in the category of magistrates. In the New Testament, we see governing authorities, rulers, higher powers, governors, emperors is one that you might see. All of those fall into the category of civil magistrates. Various levels of civil authority ordained by God. Now, where do we see this idea instituted by God? Where does it first begin? The book of Genesis. And we heard this several weeks ago from Austin when considering the distinction between the holy kingdom of God and the common kingdom of man. After the fall, God institutes the civil magistrate as the authority in the common kingdom. Genesis 4.15 And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. And I'm not going to go into everything that he said. To summarize, that would probably be better translated something to the effect of, thus, what God just said, thus, the Lord signified to Cain that those who find him will not be allowed to kill him without some sort of avenging justice. God here promises to Cain that a system is to be set up under God which serves justice, which puts restraints on murderous hearts, 
of men. Now, what does that system look like? Well, we see it again in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning, and from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now notice it doesn't say that men won't be murdered. It says murderers will be brought to justice. And who's going to wield the sword of that justice? Other men. And if we continue reading through the scriptures, we find out that individual men, just random dudes, are never given the uh, responsibility to just carry out vengeance. That's, that's never been the case. We read these passages, we see the idea of the state, as we know it is not mentioned. We, we might read these and think, man, that seems like a really limited responsibility. We would say, exactly. Romans 13 is a very limited responsibility. In these passages, we read only of the outworking of the institution that we know as the state. Individuals by themselves are never given the authority to execute murderers. That was always given to these jurisdictions, these magistrates, these authorities who had been placed over them. Therefore, we see in these passages the first institution of the civil magistrate, or what we call the state. And these passages, I think, are very helpful because they are separate from the commonwealth of Israel as a typological holy kingdom. Now, Israel did have this order established in that nation, but because Israel was not a type of the common kingdom, but a type of the church, sometimes the interpretation and application of Israel's structure to our present civil sphere is not very helpful. So, in other words, going back to Genesis before that is, is really good for us because we see these things were just like the Sabbath. They're not ideas that just popped up in the nation of Israel. These are things that God has always had in place. And then we come to the New Testament and we have Romans 13. And I would argue, as, as I just alluded, Romans 13 and the other passages in the New Testament, they don't say anything different than what has been the case from the book of Genesis. It's the same thing. Romans 13, 1-2, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now again, when we see that phrase in the ESV, the authorities, we get in our mind. I'm going to call the authorities. We picture the police. We picture blue lights. You know, uh, police cars sliding sideways down a dirt road, whatever. The authorities are on their way. We immediately think of the people, individual people, who represent civil power and authority. The word here, exousia, for governing authorities, does not refer to a person or even necessarily a group of people as much as it does the idea of civil authority. The governing authorities, we could also use the word jurisdictions. Let every person be subject to the jurisdictions, the, the idea of, of ruling authorities. Exousia should be understood more in terms of the idea of ruling and governing structure. So the passage is teaching that everyone is to be in subjection to various levels or layers of authority in a society because it is God who designed that structure. In other words, nobody can come along and say, I'm a Christian. I don't have to obey any rules. I'm a part of Christ's kingdom. The sons of the kingdom are free. 
and I don't have to obey any rules. I can drive on the left side of the road. I can drive straight through stop signs. Paul said, nah, no. The, the, the governing authorities, that idea in the civil sphere, God came up with that, and you've got to obey that too. God has established the concept of civil structures. God has ordained the civil magistrate. God has openly, clearly in His Word prescribed a system consisting of various levels of authority by which men are to administer justice. That's why men hold those offices. Now I want to read that, these verses 1 through 4, this time from the New American Standard because it uses some different, uh, I want to say verbiage, nounage, that maybe brings the picture out a little better. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That, that was the same. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Now notice how it phrases this. Therefore, whoever resists authority. Now see, that sounds a little different in our ears to the governing authorities. We think of people in the one, or at least I do. But when you hear resist authority, then you're getting the big picture, this idea of authority over us. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers, not a cause of fear uh, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? See, there's the singular again. Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Notice this. For it is a minister of God for good. It what? I was thinking of a person. Well, this kind of helps us to see we're not talking about just the individual, but the idea. It is a minister of God. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Again, that just sort of helps, uh, helps me wrap my mind around the idea to stop thinking about just the person and think in terms of the whole structure of civil society and how there are authorities who are to govern. Yes, it was God who from ancient times established the concept of governing authorities and jurisdictions among men. And like every other good thing from God, sinful men are apt to distort and pervert the good things of God. But that doesn't change the fact that this is from God. The fact that God set up this civil structure does not mean that anyone who enters into such a position in any way and governs however they please is to be considered a legitimate ruler. You can't just do whatever you want. That would be anarchy, which is opposed to the ordinance of God. God has ordained the civil magistrates. Then secondly, God has ordained the civil magistrates to be under Him. Hopefully it's rather obvious that this is the case. If God is the supreme Lord and King of all the earth or all the world, and He has ordained the civil magistrates, He's instituted the notion of governing power. That means they are under Him. God is over those powers, and those powers are under Him. Now, what does it mean that they are under Him? If you had to explain the word under, they are under Him. Well, what do you mean? Well, several things. They receive their legitimacy from Him, not from themselves. I can't just come up and say, hey, I'm going to be a magistrate, and the Lord God ordained the magistrate, so I guess you've got to listen to me now. No, that, it comes from God. God is the one who gives legitimacy to this entire structure. They receive their owed allegiance and submission from God. When we submit, when we give our allegiance to them, 
They deserve that, not because of who they are, but because of God and His institution. They do and will answer to Him for their administration. They will answer for every bit of it. They do not have self-contrived power. Any honor owed to them is in light of God's placement of them and is not intrinsic to their persons. You don't have to like the person, but you do have to honor them if they are a legitimate authority. They are not self-legislating, self-governing, autonomous sovereigns who may act in any way they please without threat of recompense from God. They're under Him. They have to be under Him. And the Bible is littered with texts that serve this in many ways. And now I'll read some of those. In the book of Job, Elihu's speaking. Job 34, 16 to 19. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him? Now he's speaking of God, him. Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? See, what he's saying is, God is the one who can come over magistrates and make these sweeping judgments. <laughs> Worthless ruler. No good. Wicked nobles. Because he's over them. He created them. And they're under him. Psalm 21, verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Who's greater? The one trusting or the one trusted in? Be the one trusted in. He's greater. He's over them. They are under Him. The king trusts in Him. Psalm 33, 13 to 17. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. It says, God's over all. He's looking down even upon kings and warriors and horses. Matthew Henry, commentating on that text, commenting, commentating, says, quote, All the powers of the creature have a dependence upon Him, that's God, and are of no account, of no avail at all without Him. It is much for the honor of God that not only... No force can prevail in opposition to Him. Nobody can oppose God, but that no force can act but in dependence on Him and by a power derived from Him. The strength of a king is nothing without God. No king is sacred by his royal prerogatives or the authority with which he is invested. For the powers that are of that kind are ordained of God and are what He makes them and no more. Psalm 61, 6, Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. Who's greater, the king or the one to whom we pray prolong his life? It would be God, the one who prolongs the life of kings. He gives them life and breath and being. Psalm 107, 39 and 40, When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. God brings judgment upon human rulers. We go to the book of Daniel. We read Daniel 2.21 weeks ago. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings because they are under him. He's over them. Daniel 2.37-38, you... Here's Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, 
the king of kings. This is the, there might be an irony here. O king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. O king, king of kings, to whom God gave that position as king over everything. God gave you everything you have because he's over you and you are under him. God gives the kingship, the greatness, the glory to Nebuchadnezzar. We saw before when it came to the magistrates who used their authority to crucify the Lord Jesus. It was said that they were gathered together against Jesus, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. He's over them. They're even according to the, the hidden will of God. It took place. Was it right for them to do that? Could they say, well, well, we were just doing what God decreed to do? No. They'll answer and be judged for their actions. All the actions of human kings from the best to the worst are beneath God and are only carried out in accordance with His eternal decree. And then Romans 13 again. The authorities that exist have been existed by God. Verse 4, He is God's servant for your good. Who's greater, the servant or the one being served? It's the one being served, the master. He's over the authority. It should be clear then that God has ordained the civil magistrates and that they are under Him. Now, what are some conclusions that we can draw from this? Number one, civil magistrates receive their boundaries from God. He ordained them. He alone sets the limits of their power. God decides what the civil magistrates can rule over and where that authority stops. If He can tell the ocean to stop, He can tell civil magistrates, your authority comes here. Their power is not absolute and unqualified. Number two, they may, they may not, this is important, they may not in their prescribed functions act contrary to the will of God. They may not. It is not okay for any person or ruling group to act contrary to the revealed will of God. In other words, they may not sin in that position. They cannot come along and say, well, God gave me a, le a legitimate position of authority, and therefore He's entrusted to me a power that goes so far that if I want to sin, it's okay for me because I have this position. No, that's not true. They may not sin. They're still expected to keep within the bounds of God's law. Why? Because they're human beings. They may not. Number three, they can act contrary to the revealed will of God. Notice the difference. They may not, but they can. In other words, they do have the ability to rule sinfully. Just like we have the ability to sin, and God does not intervene at every point when we're about to sin and say, whoa, 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 and stop us right there from doing it like He did with Abimelech and Sarah. God doesn't, God doesn't do that very often. We can sin. We may not sin, but we can. We have the ability. And these authorities are in the same position. They're human beings. They are under God. They can sin. They may not, but they can. And the fact that they have this authority given to them from God doesn't mean that God says, well, now that you're acting in a position of authority, I'll intervene right before you do anything contrary to my will so that there's never a situation where a legitimate authority rules in a sinful way. That, that just doesn't happen. We know that 
to be the case. So we live in a world where authority structures have been set up. They are expected to act in accord with God's revealed will. And yet because they are sinners, they do have the ability to act contrary to God. It will happen. Just like it does at your house. Men, a structure of authority has been established in your home. You are expected to manage your household according to God's Word. You may not sin in that regard, but you can. You do have the ability. We all have the ability. Very often, you do that. You rule, you exercise your authority in a way that is sinful because you're a sinner. Now keep that in mind. When we begin to think about our posture toward the civil authorities, let's just compare it to our home. What should be the posture of your children towards your leadership in light of the fact that you are supposed to rule in godliness and yet sometimes, many times, you don't? What should they do? What should be their disposition towards you? If we consider the home as a microcosm of the civil sphere, are we expecting more from our wives and children than we are willing to give to the governing authorities because, well, they're sinners, forgetting I'm a sinner too, and I have those under me. I have a position of authority. What about the church? The church is another sphere ordained by God with rulers and the ruled. Do you live in the church in the way that you demand your children to live in your home and your wife to live in your home? Is your attitude toward the civil powers in any way comparable to your relationship to the rulers of the church or the rulers or what you expect to see in your home? I think if we're honest, we see that when we, when I'm the one who's in authority... I expect a whole lot more than I'm willing to give when I'm not the one in authority. We begin to nitpick and pull apart every little thread of sin and, and, and everything we can find. And looking for reasons not to submit rather than saying, is this a legitimate authority? Is this being exercised within the bounds of a God-given jurisdiction? Now what is my response? What would I expect from my children? I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because I'm as guilty as anyone. I believe one of my besetting dispositions is the, the bucking of authority. Just, just the idea. I was thinking about this this week. Holidays. Halloween. I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe it is wicked in origins. I think we can, we can concede that. So let's call it Reformation Day. Well, I don't want to do that. That's my, that's my thinking. I don't, I don't want anybody telling me what days I should consider, you know, honorable or whatever. You know, that, I just felt that in me. Like, don't tell me what to celebrate. I don't want to do that. That's just my, my disposition. So, so I understand this idea that just because somebody's telling me what to do, I kind of want to push against it. And I would suggest there are some areas when people begin to step outside of their jurisdiction that it is our duty to push against it, to scoot them back over in their lane. You don't come this far. 
We have to keep in mind that when, when we don't do that, when we give that inch or two outside of a jurisdiction, we have to think about what, what, what kind of precedent we're establishing for our children and grandchildren with regard to where they think they can go and what they think they can do. This is why some have argued, and I think it's right. Right. Let's just say the, the uh, vaccines or the miracle drug. It, it, it works for everybody. It's the perfect thing. It's going to make you live forever. The government tells me to do it. Nope. Well, why not? Because you told me to do it. If you'll mind your own business, I might think about it. But I need to take a stand here to show you that's not your authority. Now, that's, that's not a, a, a statement about vaccines or whatever. But the, the point is, there's sometimes when we have to stand and say, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Well, what if you get sick and die? Have we not all been raised our whole lives reading bumper stickers in church that say freedom isn't free? Do we not celebrate every year men who have died for the cause of freedom? We know that it's a laudable thing. And yet when it comes to, well, well what if you die? Well, I don't want to die. I guess I'll do whatever they say to keep me from dying. Somebody's going to have to die. I mean, that's just the, the state of things. People die in order to push back. And so there are areas where... I think it's good to have a disposition of, of contrariness, but we got to know where those boundaries are. Where are the jurisdictions that God has ordained? Whenever that line begins to be crossed, sheriff's deputy comes up from South Carolina, I'm not pulling over. I'm not, I'm not going to let you think that you can just start driving up here every weekend and pull people over. I can't do that because that's going to issue forth in other people. That's going to be bad on them. It's going to cause them harm, you see. So, let's remember, God is supreme. Civil magistrates are under God. It's His idea. He came up with it. Next time we'll see, not only are they under God, but they are over us. As much as our flesh hates that thought, they are over us. God has ordained that. So, let's pray that God would give us grace to render honor where honor is due and to honor Him above all.